कृष्णा करुणा सिंधु दीनबंधु जगतपथे गोपीशा गोपीका कंतराधे तप्त कंचन गौरांगी राधे वृंदावनेश्वरी वृषभानुसुदे देवी प्रणमा हरि प्रिय गुड इवनिंग एवरी वन हेवन बीन हियर फॉर वाइल इन पोर्टल इट्स नाइस टू बी बैक हियर अगैन स्पेशली विथ द गुड वेदर दिस टाइम ऑफ हियर सो टुनाइट टॉक विद अबाउट mystic poetry in the nature of enlightenment and i want to speak for a little bit and um and then i've asked my my good friend uh, agni dev to sing a a poem that was composed in in the uh 16th century india and sanskrit nice poem and uh, then i'll speak a little bit about that then we'll chant some more and and see where we end up but i think the first thing that comes to my mind in terms of the uh, speaking in any language about the nature of enlightenment is the uh, is a pretty widely accepted idea and of course you speak about the concept of ultimate enlightenment the idea that it is uh, ineffable so we're stumped to begin with in one sense and i think there there's a lot of sense to that um as the upanishad say that which lies beyond speech from where speech and thought having gone return unable to do justice that is to say to the experience itself but um i think we could argue and it is argued i think pretty well that that uh, you can talk to some extent about that which enlightenment if you will is not that doesn't sit that well with me <laughs> but i i appreciate the, the idea and i suppose we could we could do that and kind of back our way into whatever enlightenment is by doing away or moving away from those things that we uh conclude uh must not have anything to do with it but i think that uh, there must be some positive content to the nature of uh enlightened life rather than it can't be constituted merely of a removal of all the negative that um that is to say doesn't constitute it doesn't make us happy that doesn't make our life progressive and uh, illumined and keeps us in uh, ignorance so two sides i would say then to to it there's there is the removal of the negative side in uh, obvious for all of you sanskrit term karma is the is really really refers to the negative side the kind of action if you will by which we incur a debt just like the nation and the world is in debt at the moment and um and it seems that the more they move or we move in the in the direction of excess if you will and greed which much of the economy is is based upon the deeper we 
we go into Detsu Karma is something like that in a fairly simple sense. The more you move in the direction of taking, then the more you end up owing. And so you go into, into negative numbers, if you will, by such movement. We incur a debt. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, as they say. So to move out of that debt and negative numbers, then to come to zero is certainly something positive in an abstract sense. Zero is full in relation to negative numbers, but the question does come uh, to the thoughtful that uh, are there any positive numbers? So is there any positive content to the nature of enlightened life? Uh, Is it a life or is it merely the end of what we know to be life that is troublesome, wherein we just sit still quietly, alone for that matter. That might sound pretty good <laughs> in comparison to the hectic pace that um, our karmic uh, life has us um, running, but um, there's reason to believe in, in sacred texts and, and a number of mystics uh, confirm it not only by their speech, which tends to be poetic, and uh, but by their action, that there is some positive content to the nature of enlightenment. There's movement, let's say, in the, in the stillness. Stillness in relation to things that don't endure. We're now moving largely in the world of realm of karma in relation to things that don't endure. And, and that in pursuit of fulfillment, happiness, knowing, the kind of perfect knowing that begets the fulfillment or happiness that, um, that in one sense we're all in pursuit of. So to cease from that, that kind of movement, that's the kind of stillness that is, I think, um, underlies, if you will, enlightened life. But then again, the question is, is there any movement after that? And if we think of it, more of um, than, a, than as, a, as, a, as a gnosis in and of itself, or alone unto itself, a knowing unto itself, uh, more of a, a I think, a, a loving in which, of course, knowing is to be found. There's, there's love in knowledge. There's a kind of knowing that's essential. There's no extra baggage there of just uh, information. And it's it can develop to an extent that uh, knowing love or enlightened love, well-reasoned love, to the extent that it almost seems to retire knowledge. And then we're back to something like bliss is ignorance is bliss. But there's some truth to that. But um, at any rate, I think the stillness, as I say, is underlying the, the, the experience of enlightenment, but there's movement there also. So what is the movement then? If, in other words, if, if you're full, full why, why move? If you, if you don't want, if you're not in need, then what is the necessity to move? Wanting, needing is an unfulfilled condition. So if there's any movement to enlightenment, then it might be questionable from that perspective. And of course, in our tradition, we sing and dance and... We're a little subdued tonight here, but <laughs> sometimes in wild uh, abandon. So that might be questionable, but um, 
I think that there's good philosophical ground and uh, and more experience even in our own ordinary, if you will, or materially conditioned life in our own um, conventional sense of self. There's um, experience to be drawn from that leads us to believe that there can be a kind of movement that is still just like when we are full and happy, then there may be some celebration of the happiness. It's not a movement out of necessity. Karma is more of a movement out of necessity. I have the sense of need, so I move and gather and take in order to add on to fill the uh, the empty uh, fill the emptiness inside. But uh, there's another kind of movement, as I say, in our own experience. Uh, you just you're full, you're happy, and you need to. There's a need to celebrate that. Love, in a sense, is like that in in this world, in the, in the sense that. We're kind of on the move for love, if you will. We, we cannot rest until we find our love. And when we find uh, our love, then we start to move again, don't we? You, you rest for a minute only, and then moving again. And it's very up and down. She loves me, she loves me not. And uh, round and round, but it's hard to get off either. It's, uh, it's exciting. It's a dynamic kind of uh, movement and fulfillment. I'm just giving a material example, of course, but I think that our conventional sense of self, if you will, our karmic sense of self, false and uh, here today and gone tomorrow as it is, nonetheless um, teaches us something about the nature of our actual being, being, it being, if you will, uh, some semblance of it, a shadow of it, a reflection of it. So, Rather than conclude that uh, uh, that um, because enlightenment is ineffable, we'll, we'll stop our talk or just leave the talk to talking about that which it's it's not. I would rather um, think of it something like this: that the nature of enlightened life is such that you cannot say enough about it. How's that? In other words, rather than you can't say anything about it, you can't say enough. Words don't do justice, that's a fact, but it doesn't mean that, that no words will be useful in this regard. And, and that's why, well, why two words in the topic tonight are poetry and, uh, and, and, and mystic, or mysticism, mystic poetry. I think that, um, briefly, if, if we were to use a, a language to, uh, talk about the nature of, of enlightenment and in a positive way, as I'm saying, that poetry lends itself to that a bit more, let's say, than uh, in comparison to, to math. Math is a language of science and of logic, and it's, it's um, maybe at the opposite, opposite spectrum of, of poetry, language, genres of language. Math is more of a, well, it's more of a controlling language to get a control and grip on things. You know, the 17th century was very much possessed in the 18th century of the, of the need to control nature and something came out of that. And math was very helpful as it turned out. Well, it's, it appeared. Uh, and it, it is, I think, on, on a certain quantitative level, but whether it is on, it is on a quality level, qualitative level, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not through the help of science and technology and 
math, we've added a lot of things to our lives quantitatively, but uh, I don't know if the quality of the life has changed. People ask, where are the mystics today? Or where, where are the Jesuses today or the Buddhas? Or where are the miracles? Well, <laughs> where is the atmosphere that, they might, that might foster them? Huh? Uh, <laughs> and the type of mindset that would be predisposed to, to finding them, to seem to recognizing them recognizing the miracles which really are there everywhere aren't they I mean it's uh, it's uh, my mother now is quite old and um, she's losing her memory mostly the short-term memory but uh, at the same time she's uh, I was speaking with my, my my brother recently and he was telling me some stories and so forth about mom's memory I hadn't seen her in a, in a, in a, in a, in a little while but um, then he went on to say that, uh, and she, every little thing she finds like funny or wonderful or amazing, the door opening and swinging, isn't that fascinating and, and so forth. He thought it was the problem, I thought it was a good, you know, good thing. <laughs> I think uh, that, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, in our conventional sense of Self that is kind of an, our unenlightened sense of self. We we live and long, in a sense, for the future, and lament about the past. And this is all at the cost of the present, of course. And so we don't see what's there to be seen, and we, as a result, we don't have a very good future, or we have not uh, the most glorious past. So. Uh, I kind of looked at it like that. She's kind of living in the in the present of finding the the, the fascination of with every um, aspect, every every facet of life. It's kind of an angle of vision, really, that causes us to see it, it, the world as 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 miraculous, or to see it really um, devoid of life. Practically, that kind of. Uh, you know, we, we suffer a bit in modern society and postmodern society, if you will, too, from an alienation that's pretty strong, that's, that's like very counterintuitive. It goes against how we, as human beings, feel life should be. It should have meaning. It should have um, purpose. It does have meaning. It does have purpose. But, but uh, they say, uh, rationally, I'm nothing. But uh, if I'm rational, I'm nothing. But if I'm loved, I'm everything. Something I don't think we're nothing or everything. So we need maybe well-reasoned love. But to err on the side of reason and empiricism would be, I think, to to, to conclude that they were the the only means of conclusive knowing, or even the best means of knowing, or even a means of knowing. I mean. Karl Popper brought that into <laughs> pretty well into question, analyzing modern science some years ago. Whether they're means of knowing at all, I mean, they are, I think, to an to extent, but as far as enthroning them on the altar as, uh, as the means of comprehensive knowing, if they are means of really comprehensive knowing, then they should be fulfilling rather than resulting in an alienated, an alienated feeling from from nature and the world and 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 from purpose and an, you know an, an existential 
resulting in an existential crisis, and uh, which is the beginning, I suppose, of the dethroning of modernism and uh, and uh, the dawning of postmodernism, which is well doubtful, to use a word that uh, might might be appropriate. So, yeah, so there are miracles. The world is miraculous. There is much to be found in the present and living in it, and and um, living for it in a meaningful way. And this is, of course, then the life of the mystic. So, we may doubt there is such a thing as enlightened life, and we may ask, with our possessed as we are, to have proof of things, which is kind of silly in in, in one sense, at least to the extent that we are, I think. But, uh, I mean, we can't even prove that we we exist. It's, not, it's a subjective experience that you all exist out here for me. I don't think I could prove it. But I act as if you do, nonetheless. <laughs> Nobody thinks that's crazy. But I think that uh, if we... If, uh, there is some, at least, good reasoning and maybe quantitative, measurable uh, evidence, for that matter, for the the idea that there is an enlightened life, and I mean in an ultimate sense, an ultimate enlightenment, an ultimate knowing and f- fulfillment and and uh, meeting with uh, the maker or the, the purpose of life. And that measurable, from a quantitative uh, point of view, influence, you know, they say, well, it justifiably so to an extent if if there's an influence then in your life then it should be measurable maybe <laughs> maybe but i think there is a measurable influence and i think that is that that is the uh, is the mystics and you know whether it be the buddha or krishna or christ or rumi these people have influenced the world considerably in in, in it quantitatively one might say good and bad but i think the bad is really only a Misunderstanding of misapplication of the of the good that they they stand for and uh, and embody and uh, and speak about if we look at the spirit of the words and look at them and don't uh, foolishly try to confine them or take them how you say uh, they they they're spoken in a context or historical context and. Um, we have to look at them in relation to the con- social historical context in which we live and draw the essence from them. We take superficially from them, we think, oh, he, the Buddha was sexist or something, you know, so forget about him. Um, so that's not a fair way of looking at these, uh, these such people. I mean, if, if, if divinity of transcendence, if enlightened life is going to express itself, if it's alive, it should have that capacity. And through a medium of a person, a saint, he or her, it's nonetheless going to appear within a cultural context. Again, as we began, language will not do justice, right? So, if you go from here, to use maybe not the best language, but we're limited by by that to there, or if we go here and really go here, and go <laughs> and go there, <laughs> then and no in ways uh, that uh, thinking gets in the way of, you know, good or bad, we think we know, but how's it go? Good or bad, we think we know, but 
we think we know, as if thinking makes things so. All conjectures, all conjectures grow along the borderline. Joni Mitchell. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's you know it's it's true. All conjectures they grow. They they, they make a borderline actually. That's where they grow. They they actually foster difference, separation, and so forth. And and good or bad, we think we know, as if thinking makes things so. But no, we may do better in terms of knowing by stopping from thinking. Meditation has some, some something to do with Yoga is an aid to, to that, in a sense, to come out from underneath the oppression, if you will, of the mind's demands and the, and the, and the smallness that it makes of us, <laughs> the world, small world that, it, that, that it, uh, we can find ourselves within that mental world of goods and bads and happies and sads and so forth. So if we were to go beyond that, and then to come back within that to, to speak about it, if we were to go there and come back, well, we would be pressed to only think about it and only speak about it and, and never be able to do justice to it. But nonetheless, um, those words will have some power. It's true that words have their limitation, but nonetheless, words backed by experience in our experience have power. You know, if you go and see a, a movie that's just, you feel after coming out from it, you've got to see this movie. You don't have to say that much, but you have to make some sounds, and there's a, there's a conviction behind it that makes them powerful. I think the more you actually know, in, in a noetic sense, in a, in, in, a, in a realized sense, the less you have to say. That's why, why you can be sure after two hours of my speaking, I don't know too much. But the mystics, they have power behind, of experience behind their speech. So these words are valuable. They, 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 they do speak about a conceptualization, but to help us get a handle on a, in an orientation of life and, a, and a, perhaps a, and a practice in life, a lifestyle, they will, they will foster going beyond the limits of conceptualization, the limits of the mind, the limits of language and so forth. So I think that the, that if that yes, there 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 is some evidence. The, the life of the mystics, of course, we cannot measure it qualitatively, but you know, measuring and math are not for that. <laughs> anyway, uh, for for measuring experience or the subjective, but objectively speaking, um, these people have have had a tremendous influence on uh, on human society. I, I chuckle sometimes when um, people like. Richard Dawkins makes a, uh, a, a defense of the idea that moral life doesn't require uh, our moral and ethic sensibilities to be grounded ontologically, and that and that without that, we we will not fall into an abyss of moral uh, relativity. Why? Because I'm an atheist and I haven't, and others haven't either, and I, I don't believe that my Moral principles need a grounding ontologically in a, in a supernatural or in an absolute. <laughs> but the whole idea of moral behavior and ethics and all, if you look at it historically, it all comes from the spiritual sector. I mean, this morality and religion really historically is but a shadow of the mystic's experience of, of spirituality. Morality, ethics, uh, religion, 
again, as I say, is a shadow of spirituality. I want to kind of differentiate between the two. Experiential spirituality, the mystic uh, knowing, and religious life, they're, they're connected, but, but they're, they're different at the same time. One is a shadow of the other. So the whole human sensibility for moral life really comes from the spiritual sector. And people like that fine gentleman, Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book, a number of books, The Smart Man, The God Delusion, he's part of the whole uh, centuries of moral sensibility coming from the um, religious sector. Right now, things can get abused of religious where moral religious uh, laws become distanced from, separate from religious uh, moral uh, ethical principles. When we speak about it as, as a principle, then we, we, we can apply it dynamically in different circumstances. So what might have been moral in the past and in other circumstances might be considered immoral now and, and for good reason or vice versa. So I think that... Uh, as I say, these uh, uh, mystics here now, then, um, they, they stand as uh, some evidence in the world for us to measure quantitatively that an influence, a, a, a supernatural influence, good and bad and bad and abuse, I think, only of, of, of the good that they speak about, that they embody, and so forth. You know, if we were to take, uh, let's say... Uh, I mean, we're talking about mystics, we're talking about mysticism, we're talking about the nature of being and so forth. There are certainly aspects about our being that, as a species, we were unaware of and we're, we've become aware of. If you want to look at Marx, for example, could be said to have unmasked our social unconscious. And so we're better off for it, finding out ways in which we were motivated and desires that we had that they were really kind of ugly socially. So we're more fuller humans for it. Not that we should all become Marxist, I don't mean, but just Freud, to use another example, from in psychology, or on a personal level, unmask the, um, the personal unconscious, unconscious and all the desires, motivations, lying within there that, that if we become aware of, we become better people. We, we understand, oh, I'm doing this be, because of such, and this is you know, not very becoming and uh, selfish and, and so on and so forth. And so if we were to, to go further, what the mystics are really talking about is, is uncovering the, if you will, the, 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 the sacred uh, consciousness. And here we go in self-exploration from a kind of a categorical difference. Our social unconscious, our personal unconscious, it's all in relation to our conventional sense of self. We might, by that I mean our American sense of self, our Indian sense of self, our European sense of self, our Latin sense of self, our male or female sense of self, our nationalist sense of self, our socialist Republican, probably not too many of them here, a democratic sense of self and, uh, and so on. That's all a conventional sense of self. For con- the sake of convention, it, it, <laughs> it's not an enduring sense of self. It's here today. 
and for sure it's gone tomorrow, for sure. We live in the karmic realm in a way to foster it. We may improve it, relatively speaking, but when we look from the mystic's point of view at self-exploration, what do we come to? We come not to the desires that are unbecoming, but to the naked form of desire itself and what it, how it fosters this conventional sense of self that causes the kind of difference and separation that doesn't allow us to get at the heart and experience of harmony and, uh, and unity that we, we feel, I guess I could say, in our heart is what life's about. You know, we are all human beings and it's a wonderful time I don't mean, you know, 19, whatever it is, 2000, excuse me, <laughs> behind the times, 2008. I mean human life. It's a wonderful time. According to the seers, it's not the only time that we've lived in. We've been here for a long time and through many, um, many dresses. As Gita says, what, what is that? tatra. <laughs> I mean, this is, we talk about poetry, we talk about singing, dancing, celebrating the, you know, the fullness of life and so forth, but there's some sobriety to that, there's some stillness to that, etc. As I said, underlying it, dira, means sober, dira statra namuyati, dehinos minnita dehe kumarom yuvanam jara. It means uh, we're changing, changing forms. And why not? Isn't that reasonable? If we are attached to the appearances of this world. And it is from that from which we are seeking our happiness and our stability, our security. Then when this particular form, when it's, it's seen its day, it's, its time has come, it's, it's, it's ready to transform, then the, the idea, of course, is that, that we remain in the same plane of experience where everything is appearing and dis- everything is an appearance appears disappears it, it, you can't get a grip on it we'll remain in the same plane because that's the plane of experience we're attached to of course we're taking for granted that there are other planes and that there is something beyond that but I guess I say it I say I'm trying to think about it with you um, in terms of um, proof to an extent and we're referring to the mystics and their life and their powerful and influential, and they ask us something very objective. Sometimes people want rational proof that there can be something supernatural. They want us to give some objective proof, and that's kind of a silly thing in a sense, you know, to bring under the controlled experiment something that's beyond our control, to find a purpose in life inside of a the controlled experiment is, is you're not going to find it purpose. It's not on the radar screen of the controlled experiment because purpose means what greater than us. There's a purpose that the world has, that life has, that we're to find. You're not going to find it there. Um, but you want to speak about objectivity nonetheless and, and demand such. Well, Vedanta, yoga, yoga is a radical approach to objectivity. You want to be objective. <laughs> this will scare them away. It's one thing to go to work in the lab, and I have nothing against science, uh, but it's one thing to go to work in the lab and objectively, as much as any human can, 
make an experiment, take the data, you know, and not be worried about not getting your paycheck if the data doesn't exactly come up with what what everybody wants it to come up with or feels it's the world's going in that way, let's go with that, you know. So there are problems there. But at any rate, it's one thing to be objective in the lab and then go home and overeat. Is that objective? <laughs> Does that make sense? Is that, I mean, this is a simple example. Have you ever done something that with your intelligence you've understood is not in your own interest? Can you remember, you know, <laughs> ever acting otherwise? Uh, it's, uh, this is our predicament. When we were talking about a mystic, this is what we were talking about. We were really talking about a super being that's rational in a living sense. Do you follow me? This is what yoga discipline is about. After all, objectivity requires some detachment, doesn't it? If we're too close to a thing, we can't see it for what it is. We're to step back and look with an eye of objectivity to know it for what it is. If we're too close, we're attached, then, you know, in love, well, your faults become ornaments, right? If I love you, then I see your faults as ornaments. Love has that power. That's a good thing. But to be objective, we should love. We should love fully. We should have enlightened love, too. As I said, we should have well-reasoned love that requires an, a degree of stepping back, if you will, from the world with the detachment to see it for what it is and then go and embrace it. Otherwise, if we don't know what it is, we're attached to it, we're using it, we may tend to abuse it, not give it, a, allow it its own life, whatever it may be. We become manipulative, we, we're dependent, we're in need, right? So we're taking. Need mean, we're in need means we're, we have attachment. So we're on the take, and we're taking the life out of everything. No wonder we become bored, which is really the only sin in the world. You become bored, there's no excitement, so add something on. And science would help us, or technology would help us. You can add a whole bunch of things on and think that you're fulfilled, and all the while becoming more alienated. If you look at the bottom line of it, of the kind of, maybe the philosophy that seems to lend more naturally to the scientific method, naturalism, physicalism, and so forth, you end up with a lack of, uh, of meaning, as I say. So this, if you want objectivity, this is, this is a very good, this is a challenge. Do yoga. I mean, in, in, a, in a deep sense. And all of you have some, obviously, familiarity with yoga. Some of you may be great yogis and yoginis, I'm sure. But, um, and I'm, I'm fortunate to have your association. But that there obviously is popular yoga also. And that's good. But anything popular is going to be a little far from the truth. Not entirely divorced from it, but it's not at the heart of it either. Truth is not going to be popular in a world of falsity. And so, to get to the heart of yoga, that is a real challenge. This is a very radical approach to knowing to, and to objectivity. It requires some detachment. When you say, you know, Sam Harris wrote a book called End of Faith, you know, hundreds of pages of lambasting fundamentalist religion with for good ways and in some ways that weren't that well thought out. That, and I'm not a big fan of fundamentalist religion, whatever the, whatever the sect may be. But, um, but, but in the end, he says, he, he takes a paragraph or two and uh, speaks about Eastern mysticism. Error on his part, because there's Western mysticism too. I mean, it's really the heart of all religious traditions. 
But he says it's a valid means of self-discovery, a rational approach to uh, spirituality compared to, like, as he was doing, a fundamentalist approach that of, of belief and superstition and so forth. Well, the book was really promoting atheism. He kind of shot himself in the foot there, I thought, because... We, if you go to that, you go to the heart of all the religious traditions. You go, you know, science began as a Christian. You know that it was born a Christian in Europe, and then it became agnostic, and now some people argue it's atheistic, and it will become, if it's to remain meaningful for us, a mystic in due course of time. Hmm? Has to come to that. If it's about objectivity. Objectivity, as I said, requires some detachment. And yoga is a very, in Vedanta, radical approach to objectivity. You have to control your senses. That's discipline, right? You have to be still in relation to the move, moving world, which, which is kind of an appearance. It's a kind of an appearance. Because you plugged into it, it's moving. You've plugged it, your consciousness, and you've plugged yourself into matter by way of attachment. And it seems to make the whole thing alive. Just like the television requires a viewer for it to have any life. The problem is that it takes over the life of the viewer sometimes. So we are the animating force, consciousness, the animating force of matter. A good friend of mine here tonight, uh, uh, I consider a good friend, once asked me in the kitchen, why should you look at consciousness and matter as different from one another? I don't know if I said it at the time, but remembering it now, well, they're pretty different. <laughs> they act very differently, as does mind, for that matter, which, which is kind of, in the Vedic and the yogic worldview, kind of a, a subtle form of, of, of matter that links consciousness, which is categorically different from matter, to matter, and weds the two together and makes the whole show go round. I mean, matter is objective, consciousness is subjective, they're very, <laughs> they're very different. The idea of reducing that consciousness and mind into matter, it's really counterintuitive. That there's no hierarchy. So, anyway, if you want some objectivity so that we can speak rationally about the supernatural, about mysticism and, and a life beyond... Um, Beyond, uh, beyond the senses, beyond brain, life beyond brain, <laughs> uh, then uh, this is good. Yoga is good for that. This is what it's about. It's very, very radical. If you, as I say, if you go to the heart of it, it's a real, real challenge to come and sit. You know, they, that's that famous saying. What is it? That's a household saying. Don't just sit there. Do something. And that nice lady wrote a book. Don't just do something. Sit there. Try that. That's a challenge, isn't it? I heard about a gathering, <coughs> excuse me, of scientists. Oh, I've really got them on my mind tonight. Uh, hundreds of them gathered, and, uh, and uh, one of the ground rules for the gathering was that it was going to be a week long, and for three days nobody could talk. It's organized by some Buddhists, kind of a symposium of Buddhism and science, and so none of them could talk. Nobody could say anything, and they weren't. They were to avoid eye contact with one another as well for three days. <laughs> Some of them said it was really, you know, it was really difficult for them uh, to do that, to uh, to not talk, to not. Uh, didn't really, and unless you're going to talk, 
in one sense, the less you're going to think, but in another sense, the more you might think deeply. The more active we are in relation to the, uh, the, the call of the senses, the less we tend to think. You know, I had, had an ashram once in San Francisco. I was living in it. It was across the street from a bar. This was in the 80s when the San Francisco 49ers were like the, you know, the talk of the town every, every fall and, and winter. They were winning all the Super Bowls and things like that. And, uh, and so we, we'd have a gathering every, every Sunday. And they had one too at the sports bar across the, the street. And it was like, I mean, I have nothing against football, but it was interesting uh, contrast. They were very um, active, I would say, in relation to the to the call of their senses, the call of the wild, and they were a bit wild, and there we were calmly sitting on the other side of the street, <laughs> and uh, you know meet them as 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 the, as the uh, visitors from the ashram would come out from the Sunday discourse and program, and they meet the faithful Forty Nine er fans. It was a contrast. So I think that uh, there's some truth to that. That as much as we are driven by the senses. I mean, eh, we're humans, as I said. It's a great time. What is humanity, in a sense, means what? That this consciousness that underlies, that that is life, that appears in different dresses, if you will, that (laughs) in human life it's rising to the point where it knows itself. I mean, it's fantastic. We, We know that we exist. Nature wakes up to the fact it has a soul, if you will. In the less complex forms of life, Descartes made a big uh, mistake there when he distinguished mind, and I, I guess it could be argued he meant consciousness or soul too, from matter, but in a way that seemed to, uh, to authorize, if not mandate, an assault on nature. nature. Whereas in India, in the Upanishads, long before his uh, thoughtful, I think, therefore I am, uh, the, the, the rishis, the mystics, were arriving at the same conclusion. If not, I think before I am. I, I, I am, therefore I think, and, uh, and and taking it a step beyond mind as well as matter. But in doing that, they did it in a way that didn't mandate or in any way promote an assault on nature that would cause the kind of, like I say, alienation from the world that humanity feels now in an existential crisis is it's a very different um, approach so human life very special it's it, it, we we know that we be i mean the point i'm making in one sense is that descartes let's say he realized or at least thought the intellectualized that i'm a conscious being i'm aware of myself wow i'm different from everybody else but is that is he different or Categorically, from everybody else, and other, all other forms of life, I would have thought there's more similarity than there is difference. There's more similarity between myself as a complex form of life that's conscious and aware that I exist, and a cow, or a dog, or a cat that's also aware but not self-aware. I mean, is is there more likeness? to awareness and self-awareness, or is there more difference? You follow me? There's more likeness, I think, than difference. And what is the difference? 
What is the difference? The difference is the dress, this human form of life, which it gives us, which is a, yoga is kind of a consciousness-driven evolution, if you will. So coming to the human form of life, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a facilitating of consciousness. It's starting to bud and be aware of itself. That's fascinating, to be aware of yourself. And we're a little bit aware of what the potential of that, of ourself is. You know, we see, we see birds fly in the sky and we see you know, whales swim deep in the ocean and so forth. And we want to go high in the sky. So we build a jet plane and we want to we build a submarine to go into the... We have a sense, I mean to say, in human life that, that we could do anything. Where is it coming from? It's coming from the fact that, that we are consciousness. And consciousness is not limited by matter. We're of a supernatural nature and we're not really constricted by nature other than by ignorance. We've animated it, but it's taken over our life. Like that TV might turn you into a couch potato, but you know, somebody's got to come wake you up. You've got a life. Hmm? Turn off the tube and you know, there's more to do here. And much more. How much more? <laughs> How much can you taste with a tongue and one? How much can you hear? How much can you do justice to the sounds that there are with two ears? It's not that we can see because we have eyes. They get in the way of our seeing. It's not that we can hear because we have ears. They get in the way of our hearing. It's not that we can know because we think. That gets in the way of knowing. And some sense about this is dawning in, 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 in human life. The consciousness is developed, so to speak, or is blossoming. The, the particular vehicle it's in is facilitating that. So, so we, what do we do? We, we want to do everything that, that every species of life does. We feel we can, do, we can do anything. We feel we can conquer nature. But without thinking about consciousness deeply, as the mystics do, and exploring that, that subjective uh, reality, and denying it for that matter, <laughs> philosophizing it away, if you can call that philosophy, and then trying to conquer nature physically, to conquer physical nature with our physical nature. <laughs> it's just, we're not getting too far with that. Hmm? That's a fact. In fact, it's some thoughtful people more so than I, more, more thoughtful than I have well have, Reasoned well, it, it's, it's becoming counterproductive. It's problematic. Economic crisis is not, not separate from that either. It's a greed-based life here of taking. But in material life, it's not a pretty thing. This conventional self, however well socially integrated, however well psychologically balanced, it's not that pretty of a thing. We should be psychologically balanced. We should be well socially integrated. And what will be the determining factor, uh, the factor that determines we are, the extent, the, I would think, the extent to which that psychological balance, that social integration and so forth, intellectual integrity fosters spiritual pursuit and real knowing and the knowing of the other half or the whole, the supernatural, acting in such a way that nature will give release, will let you go. And the supernatural will embrace you. Yes, we want to rise above nature. But how far have we gotten? 
you know, dog is running on four legs and barking, man is riding on four wheels and blowing the horn. Both have the same thing. Hi, there she is. That's another, we go on to that, I think, but anyway, my point is this, before we sing something, that poetry is a better language than math for speaking about enlightenment. Math is more for controlling and the enlightenment, by that I mean there's a higher purpose to life for us to find and discover. We will discover it by a participatory orientation to life rather than a, a controlling orientation to life and a taking orientation to life. But controlling, the desire to control fosters an epistemology or a way of knowing uh, like, for example, the scientific method based on empiricism. Add a little reasoning to that. A worldview comes out of it. Physicalism, naturalism, materialism, as you like, reductionism. The result of which is alienation. Participatory approach to life also then fosters a way of knowing. Something like yogic knowing. This is kind of a backwards way of knowing. Right? To go going within rather than without. Kind of a... Um, uh, insightful uh, discernment, you know, and this is this is not something that that the uh, rationalist or an, empir- or an empiricist will be able to deny. Deny so many of the great scientific uh, contributions and insights into the world have come from from closing the book and stopping from thinking for a while, and suddenly I got an idea. So, an orientation to life like that, poetry is more participatory. It's more ambiguous, if you will, than precise, and life is a little ambiguous, uh, and it's the infinite is hard to get a grip on. <laughs>